Um, Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. If there's any doubt in your mind that we're not living in the days that the Lord is telling us in advance, has been telling us for some time, then you need to wake up. You need to open your eyes and open your heart and see things for what's happening because we're rapidly approaching that time. And and I think it's interesting because we're looking at Matthew 24 and 25 over the next uh, two or three weeks. And um, I I feel like I've been preparing for this message for all my life, honestly, because it's a a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And I got to be honest, it is a fearful thing to come across this chapter uh, it's not an, uh, something you just get up and wing it. Uh, there's uh, many months and a long time, I think, just the Lord working and preparing my heart and uh, leading me to the, the truth. And uh, It's an incredible thing. So I'm looking forward to sharing it with you this morning before we take communion. Um, over the last, uh, since we've been in Matthew several weeks ago, I began putting this Passion Week uh, chart up on the screen for you, and I did this for a reason because as you look at, as we look at the Olivet Discourse, it falls right on a Wednesday. Um, There's been some new scholarship, and it's really a wonderful, uh, incredible thing. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, let me know. I can show you these things. But, um, and it's not just, there's a handful of things that actually led me to this chart, and I believe it is accurate, as, as accurate as it can be. Um, but we're talking about this Olivet Discourse, which is uh, Matthew 24 and 25. And what you see here on the screen is a, a series of days. And you remember that we first originally talked about um, Monday, which was the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, uh, fulfilling Daniel's, uh, the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. And then, um, and then the cursing of the fig tree. And as we've been going through Matthew 21 and 22, um, we've been looking at Jesus cleansing the temple. And now finally we come to Wednesday, this April 1st, the 12th of Nisan, which is two days prior to the April 3rd, the 14th of Nisan, a Friday, which we know as Good Friday. And so we're, we're getting into this uh, Olivet Discourse that Jesus taught four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just opposite the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And he did this back in 33 AD. 33 AD. And as I've said before, this, these two chapters are going to be the longest prophetic discourse that Jesus had um, ever gave in the Scripture. And it's called Olivet Discourse because... Jesus shared this with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew on the Mount of Olives on, on, like I said, on Wednesday, April 1st, the 12th of Nisan, just two days before his crucifixion. Some have said that Matthew 24 and 25 are an abbreviated form of what Revelation 6 through 19 spells out in detail. And for those of you who have been here for some time, you know that Revelation 6 through 19, or 6 through 18, arguably, okay, it talks about the great tribulation period that is yet coming upon the earth, right? And the church is removed before that great tribulation period. But that period of time is spelled out for us in Revelation in chapter 6 through 18, 16 through 19. And, and it goes into quite a bit of detail. And many have said that Jesus' uh, discourse that he gives to his disciples here is an abbreviated form of that. And I think we will see that as we go into it. And so for the last three weeks, we have looked at the difference between the church and Israel in the scripture, because there is a difference between the church and Israel and their respective promises, uh, prophecies, and the ultimate fulfillments of those things in the millennial reign with Christ. And we also looked at the fact that the church has not replaced Israel, and Israel has not replaced the church. A very important distinction between those things. And although there are what I would call rapture-esque sounding phrases in Matthew 24, and we're going to get to them in a, in a week or so, um, the church is not in view in Matthew 24 and 25. Because Jesus is speaking about the Daniel 70th week. And if our understanding is correct, 
then before the 70th week takes place, the church must be removed. And there's a lot of scriptures that corroborate that statement. But I want to you to remember that even in Daniel's prophecy, where we get this 70-week uh, prophecy from, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. So who is Daniel's people? Who are they? The Jews. And what is his holy city? There's only one, Jerusalem, right? And so Matthew in 24 and 25 is concerning Israel and the Jewish people and concerning Jerusalem specifically. And I think we will see that. So we looked at that and we also spent a week or so talking about Daniel's 70th week specifically because that is yet future to us. It's a 70, they call it Daniel's 70th week, but it's a week of years. And we looked at that last week, I believe. And we looked at um, when this seven-year period begins, what happens during those seven years, and when will it end, and why is it important? We looked at that all last week. And, um, and if you remember, I'm going to leave this graphic up for a while, but this is basically Daniel's 70th week in a nutshell. After the rapture of the church, there is going to be a seven-year period uh, on the earth divided into three and a half years. And right in the middle of this period, uh, a number of scriptures speak of the Antichrist, this man on the scene who, who could be alive right now, and he doesn't know who he is. He's just a politician, and he's just a, uh, a very uh, in, uh, you know, smart gentleman, a very uh, an esteemed politician perhaps, or somebody in the shadows that nobody knows of yet. We don't really know. I'm not looking for him, by the way. I could care less who the Antichrist is. You want to know why? Because I'm not going to be here when he's revealed. And neither will you if you're a believer in Christ. So don't worry about those things. And so I'm going to leave this chart up here. It'll kind of give you a, a frame to look at as we're going through uh, these things. So um, just backing up a little bit. After Jesus in Matthew 23, he upbraids uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, he condemns them for their hardness of heart and for their unbelief. And you remember that we looked at that. And he says at the closing of chapter 23, while still on the temple mount, Jesus said these words in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Notice it wasn't that they couldn't believe, they wouldn't. They were not willing. There's a difference between could and would. Because could, you know, if you cannot do something, it means that there's something that is forcing you to not be able to do it. But it's a whole different ballgame when you will not. Because now it's uh, my will is being exercised. Am I going to do it? I can do it. But will I? The decision has to be made. And they chose no thank you. And by the way, all the Gentiles in the world, the Rome, they, they said no thank you to Jesus as well. So it wasn't just the Jews who put Jesus on the cross, it was the Gentiles. All of humanity was very happy to put Jesus on the cross. In fact, I saw recently a man holding up a placard, and, and, and I think it was out at the Prophecy Conference. How many of you went to the Prophecy Conference out at the Finger Lakes? One person? Okay. All right, but the, I saw a picture of, of some guy holding up a sign, and it says, if Jesus comes back again, we're going to kill him again. Isn't that incredible? That's the sentiment of the world right now. That's the sentiment. But Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones that were sent to her, how often um, I will gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was at this time that Jesus, in a sense, washed his hands of Israel and, and the temple for a season. It's important for me to put in for a season because he hasn't given up on them. And as a nation, he, he, would, he would turn them over. He would let them have what they want. And they will not see him again until they cry out and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now remember, just two days prior to Jesus, what he's speaking to us today, on the Wednesday, just two days prior on Monday, remember 
that he rode into Jerusalem fulfilling Daniel 9.25. Remember that? And the remnant leading him into Jerusalem, what did they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A handful said this, but notice, not the whole nation. He walked in and people were wondering, who are you? Get out of here. We don't want you. So Jesus' triumphal entry was the time that the kingdom was offered to Israel and they refused him. They rejected him. And now the kingdom has been postponed for a season. It's been postponed for almost 2,000 years now, but we know that the kingdom is coming when Jesus returns in his second coming to the earth physically. Then the kingdom will come. So in the future... Near the end of Daniel's 70th week, as we see up here on the screen, as we get closer to the end of that great tribulation period, right when Jesus is getting ready to return, the the Jews are going to cry out for their Savior once again. And they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and he will return and he will deliver Israel from the destruction of the Antichrist and his armies. Open with me to um, Matthew 24. We're going to look at... um, uh, We're going to look at just the first uh, 31 verses. Let's read it. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Anti-Semitism at its best, folks. And then they will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, how many of you have a New King James Version Bible? Raise your hand. Okay, you'll notice if you have a New King James Version, there's a heading now that says the Great Tribulation. Pay attention to that, because notice what happens. Therefore, when you see the abomination, and and actually I think that that title could be a little more clearer, to be honest with you, because I think we'll talk about this in a minute. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight be not in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, notice, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Aren't you glad that the Lord tells us things ahead of time? And isn't that what a good shepherd does? A shepherd goes into the field and looks for all the bugs and the ticks and and the, the poisonous plants and removes those things before he sends his flock in. See, God, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd. Isn't that what Matthew or John tells us in, I think, chapter 11? He's the good shepherd. Therefore, I already read that. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out for, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. 
And now notice another heading, if you've got a new King James Version Bible, it says the coming of the Son of Man. The very end of Daniel's 70th week. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man, notice, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is not the rapture. Okay, this is the second coming. Make sure you get those two because this is going to be a worldwide event. Everyone is going to see this. The rapture is going to happen in a twinkling of an eye and no one's going to notice. It's going to be so quick. But this happens in the time frame, in the, in the context of judgment. God has already been pouring out his judgment and unless he came into the earth, no flesh would survive it. And so he comes back to the earth. Now, I believe, now, we could go down through verse 44, and it, it, it kind of finishes out with more of, of, of some uh, text about Christ, his second coming, but we're not going to go there today. But I believe that verses 4 through 44 are specifically outlines the 70th week of Daniel that we've already looked at, which also culminates in the return of Christ to the earth, which we also know as the second coming. Now, verses 4 through 14 that we've already read, they can definitely be placed within the first half of the tribulation, within the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And verses 15 through 25 can definitely be placed at the midpoint of the tribulation. And we will see that we see these things. Uh, actually, let me back up. In uh, verses 4 through 14, those things placed in the first half of the tribulation, we can see those things, and we're going to look at that today, happening at the very beginning in the sealed judgments uh, in the great tribulation. And we see that in Revelation 6 and beyond. But verses 15 through 25 speaks of the midpoint of this tribulation, speaking of this Antichrist who was revealed to us in Revelation 13 after the uh, seals and the trumpet judgments, we believe right in the center of that, based on Daniel's prophecy, right in the middle of that seven-year period. Now, verses 29 through 44, which we just read with that heading where it says the coming of the Son of Man, that actually terminates the great tribulation period. It terminates the 70th week of Daniel, the, 70, the seven weeks of years. The seven-year seven period with the second coming. And we see that in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And we will look at the divisions of that uh, as we get further into it uh, next week as well. But I want you to notice some designations first before we go. I mean, let's just look at what's obvious here. Notice in verse 15. We already looked at this, but let's take a look at it. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet... Standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Because you've got to really think about this. It's not hard, but you have to think about what he's saying. And this is kind of a heavy thought. Remember back in the 70s? Hey, that's a heavy thought, man. <laughs> this is a heavy thought. It's a heavy thought. Here's why. Because Jesus, when he's speaking this, he's speaking in 33 AD. Okay? He's speaking of a prophecy that he inspired himself to give to Daniel through the prophet or through the angel Gabriel back in the 6th century BC of an event that is still yet future to us does that make sense let me read it to you again he's speaking in 33 AD of a prophecy that he inspired and gave to Daniel through the angel Gabriel back in the 6th century BC of an event that is still yet future to us even today And we looked at Daniel, Daniel's prophecy last week, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, talking about this week of years. And then right in the middle of the week, the Antichrist will put an end to the, the offerings and, 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 and things of that nature, right? So when is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about, this Antichrist, when does he stand in the holy place? Well, 
We just looked at it. Matthew 24, 20, uh, 24 15 tells us uh, that's one place. Another place in uh, 2 Thessalonians says that, um, that this man of sin who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits in, as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And Paul wrote this in the first century And it's not talking about the temple that was there at the time. And of course, Daniel tells us that this is, and Jesus says that this is yet future. But guess what? There's no temple on the Temple Mount, is there? Right now. So where does this abomination of desolation take place? When does he stand in the holy place? The answer is right in the middle or the midpoint of the tribulation of this seven-year period. Right in the center. He comes, he makes, he breaks the covenant that he made at least three years earlier, puts an end to the sacrifices, puts an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped, and all the world will have to worship him, or they will not receive goods or services. They won't receive food. They'll have to take a mark on their hand. We're already being conditioned for that, folks. I don't know if you noticed. It's coming. It's coming. But thank God that the church will not be here. Now look with me at verse 29 of Matthew 24. This is another important designation to make because Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So if that's the tribulation period, after that tribulation, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. Notice verse 30, then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see, they will see of all the earth. And here's the difference between the rapture and the second coming. The second coming is visible to the whole entire world. Everyone will see him returning and they are gonna be freaked out. It's never happened, folks, before. Ever in the history of man, they've never seen Christ coming back. It's going to be one moment where every jaw is going to hit the ground and every loin is going to be loosed. It is going to be one moment that there'll be freakish horror over many faces. Those who have rejected Christ, they are going to know our goose is cooked. And do you think God delights in that? He doesn't. He loves people. But he gives to the stubborn soul like myself. He gave me grace. (laughs) And he saved my soul. And I'm here by the grace of God. And I love him with all my heart. Do you love Jesus with all of your heart? Do you know that he loves you with all of your heart? Even amidst your hot mess that you got going on right now. Yes, even amidst all those things that are going on in your life. He loves you. He wants you to come to him. He knows what's best for you. And he does know what's best for me. And I'm so happy to be his child. I'm so happy. I've never been more fulfilled and excited and happy in all of my life. Because I believe me, before I came to Christ, I did everything. I tried all that stuff. And let me tell you, there's nothing at the bottom of that except despair. It's horrible. The sign of the Son of Man will come and he will return at the end of that tribulation. So when does Christ return to the earth physically? Right at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And the second coming of Christ, it completes or terminates Daniel's 70th week. Does everybody that make sense? Okay. Notice in verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. I want you to underline the word temple. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus wasn't impressed with Herod's architecture. Certainly it was a wonderful sight to behold, there's no doubt. He wasn't impressed, he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't thrilled by the value of the materials that went into making the temple and all of its buildings. To Jesus, once Israel had rejected him, all of this stuff was worthless. It had no meaning because it wasn't about their relationship with God anymore. It was all about empty religious pursuits. That's what the... Ter- the temple had become. And it's important to note that Jesus refers to two temples in this chapter. One is right here in verse 1, which was standing when Jesus spoke this. He was speaking about Herod's temple as his disciples were saying, Lord, look at all of this stuff. This can't go away. Look at how beautiful this is. 
Now, in Daniel, you might want to write next to that word temple, write in Daniel 9.26, because Daniel speaks of Herod's temple. And it says in Daniel 9.26, And after the 62 weeks, and we've already looked at this, Messiah shall be cut off, and he did. He was crucified. But not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that happened in 70 AD. The Romans came and did that. And so that temple that is being spoken of there, the sanctuary, was Herod's temple. Now there's another temple. Look over in verse 15 in your Bible now. There's another temple that's spoken of. And it is the temple that is yet to be built in Jerusalem. Has anybody seen a temple on the Temple Mount right now? What do you see? You don't see a temple. You see the Dome of the Rock. You see the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Silver Dome. And then you have the big Golden Dome, which is iconic of Jerusalem skyline. It's one of the first things you see when you come out of the tunnel from the road coming into Jerusalem. You're in a tunnel, and then you come out, and boom, there it is. And everybody on the bus goes to one side, the bus tips over, it's a mess. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) A bus accident, Christians. (gasps) Right? But that's what's up there now. But when Jesus spoke in verse 15 of this abomination of desolation... He's speaking of a temple that will be built at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. A temple that we believe, based on Daniel 9.27, has to be built. Because he has to make a treaty or some kind of uh, covenant with them because he's going to break that covenant in the middle of the week and he's going to place an image of himself. We've looked at the scriptures already. There's no doubt that there has to be a temple for, there to, for him to break the, the, the covenant. There has to be a temple to be built. And believe me, can you imagine the political wrangling that has to happen in order for a Jewish temple to be next to the Dome of the Rock? If they tried to do that today, there'd be nuclear war. I forget when it was. It was in the 80s or 90s. They tried to drag the Temple Institute, who I talked to you about last week, they tried to drag on a, 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 a cornerstone onto the Temple Mount, and it started a huge riot, and it stopped. It stopped. International community was all abuzz. You Jews got to stop that. Hey, listen. Love the Jewish people. They're not perfect but they're God's people. And our destinies are intertwined with them. We serve, this, we serve Jesus, their, their, their Messiah. Many of them don't know him as their Messiah. They need to. But when Jesus spoke of this in verse 15, he is speaking of another temple that hasn't been built yet. You remember the story I told you when we went to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem in 2005, and it's in the old city in Jerusalem, and we walked in, and they had all the temple vestures and all the instruments. They're ready to go, folks. They're ready to go. They've got everything. And there was a big uh, donation box. It was made of clear glass, if I, if I think, remember, if I remember correctly. And people, all of us gullible Christians, are putting money in there because they're like, oh, this is exciting, right? And one of the pastors on the tour um, he says, you know what? He goes, I don't know if I would give to that, you guys. And everyone's kind of like, what are you talking about? We, of course we support Israel. We love Israel. And he goes, well, do you know the temple that's going to be built? It's not going to be for Jesus. His millennial temple, he's going to build. But this one in, in the middle that's going to be built when the church is raptured and when the Antichrist makes this deal, the brokers this thing to make it happen, do you know who's going to inhabit that temple? It's not going to be Jesus. So what are we doing? We're supporting a temple that the devil is going to inhabit. (laughs) That's kind of a conflict of interest, wouldn't you say? Right? In Daniel 9.27, it tells us that. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist or the beast, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week or one week of years, seven, seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So in the middle of that seven-year period, right in the middle, he has to, uh, he brings an end to the sacrifice. In order for there to be sacrifice and offering, there has to be a temple. And it has to be built earlier. So maybe that covenant, that treaty, maybe that's part of the deal. We'll let you build your temple right next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque if it's still there. So so this temple will possibly be built right next to the Dome of the Rock. And we, you know, this is the skyline, the thing that you see in Jerusalem every, every time you go, which was built in the 7th century A.D. So 
Notice, Jesus went out, verse 1 again, he went out and departed from the temple and his disciples. Now, they came up to show him the buildings of the temple, but where, who are the disciples that were there? Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us, but Mark's gospel in chapter 3, verse, or thir- chapter 3, verse, <laughs> sorry, getting a little dyslexic. Mark 13, verse 3 tells us who was there. And it was two sets of brothers. I love this. Peter and James and John and Andrew, two sets of brothers. Where were the other eight guys? I wonder. But anyway, so they come to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? He's looking at the temple. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus, as he's looking, he is speaking of the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And that did occur about uh, 37 years following his speech at that temple mount. It happened in 70 AD. The Romans, Titus Vespasian, and the Roman, the 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions came and they destroyed Jerusalem. And they razed it to the ground. They pulled the rocks off into the southwest, all over there. They pulled the rocks off of the temple mount onto the ground. And they're still there today. And this was back in uh, 2020 during the uh, pandemic. I mean the pandemic. I was standing on these rocks. You can't do it anymore. They got it all cordoned off because probably because if you twist your ankle, you can sue them or something. I don't know. But we, we were able to get up there. But these boulders are a reminder of the siege of 70 AD, and they're there today at the base of the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And um, so going on in verse 3 here, notice, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. These four men, these two sets of brothers, they come to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, one thing we have to understand is that the disciples, they are thinking of Zechariah chapter 4. Or 14, excuse me. An Old Testament prophet, speaking of the last days, speaking of when Christ comes to the earth. So based on Zechariah 14, the disciples were more than likely thinking that Jesus would return immediately after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem to rescue the Jews. And why would they think that? Well, they had a good reason to think that. Turn with me, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 14. We're just going to read the first 12 verses because Zechariah tells us of a time when Christ comes to the earth in the Old Testament. So the disciples knew Zechariah. They had read Zechariah many times. So as Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and him returning, they're thinking to themselves, Zechariah 14, no doubt. Zechariah 14. And notice what it says. If you got a King James Version, it says, the day of the Lord at the header. Right? Notice. Let me read it. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses riffled, and the women ravaged, ravaged, Ravish, excuse me. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then notice, then the Lord, then Jehovah will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his foot will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making a very large valley, half of the mountain spread toward the north, half of it toward the south. And then you shall flee through my mountain valley, Jews, he's saying. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal, and yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. It might say you in your translation, but many translations say him there. They will come back with him. Where am I at here? Okay. 
And it shall come to pass in that day, verse 6, that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at the evening it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, speaking of the uh, the Dead Sea, and half of them toward the Western Sea, which we know as the Mediterranean. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one, and all the land um, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel to the, gate, the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited, notice, and this can only happen at the second coming of Christ. And this shall be the plague which, which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. And this tells us the battle of Armageddon. It tells us in Revelation 19 that this is what's going to happen. The people who fought against Jerusalem, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. And their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And so this is going to happen when Christ comes back to the earth. So now the Jews and these four disciples are thinking to themselves when Jesus is talking about this destruction of the temple and Jesus returning. They're thinking the end of the age. That's what they're thinking. And they failed to understand the timing of the temple's destruction and the interval of time between that destruction and when the Lord would return. Because remember, after the, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, how long has it been? It's been at least 2,000 years, and the Lord hasn't physically returned yet to the earth, has he? Now, some have thought that the disciples asked three questions here in verse 3. And what are those three questions? When will the temple be destroyed? What is the sign of your return? What is the sign of the end of the age? Now, again, to the disciples' mind, they equate the temple destruction, the assault on Jerusalem, the Messiah's return to deliver them. They see that as the end of the age. And they were right in thinking so. They were just didn't understand the timing of it all. Now, in the Greek language, and this is important to look at, and I, honestly, I, I don't read in Greek. I don't know Greek. But this is one phrase that helps us with this passage. In the original Greek, it leaves out the definite article, which also points out that there were really only two questions that were asked. And, and that makes sense based on their understanding of Zechariah. No, notice in, in verse 3 of Matthew 24 here, it says, Tell us, when will these things be? That's the first question. What will be the sign of your coming? That appears to be the second question. And of the end of the age. Now, in his book, uh, Understanding the Olivet Discourse, Thomas Ice has this in the book, and I think it's, it's worth noting. It says, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age in Greek reads more literally, the sign of your coming and end of the age. By not repeating the definite article the before the phrase end of the age, Matthew's rendering of Jesus' words is almost, was most likely linking the coming of Christ and the end of the age together as one event. And so really what we have here is two questions. They're asking, <laughs> is when is the temple going to be destroyed and what is the sign of your coming and end of the age, which they really saw as one event. Does that make sense? Based on their understanding of Zechariah. Because Zechariah that we just read, what does it speak about? It speaks about enemies coming and destroying the temple and then the Messiah returning to deliver them. And that's what they're thinking. That's what they're thinking, no doubt. So, Matthew, in his gospel, as we're looking here, it doesn't record Jesus answering the first question about the destruction of the temple. He doesn't answer that question. Not here. I mean, it's recorded in Luke's gospel. Luke sifted this out and made sure that we understood, hey, he did talk about that. It just, Matthew had a certain thing that he wanted to portray, and the first question really wasn't the big deal. The real big deal was, when are you coming back? What's the end of the age? 
And so Luke, Matthew doesn't tell us when the, about anything about this temple being destroyed, but Luke's gospel does. In Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 34, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. We, we already read this in Matthew, the, the parallel account. He says, you know, how often I would have gathered your, you know, like a mother gathers her hens, but you, or chickens, but you would not. And see, your house is left to you desolate. It's left to you desolate. It will be desolate, in other words. In Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, and this is immediately after the triumphal entry, just two days prior to when Jesus gave this message, what did he say? It tells us in Luke 19, 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, Jerusalem, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now... They are hidden from your eyes. And then here it is in verse 43. For days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. And they're going to level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Yes, Jesus was prophesying of the 70 AD battle that would, that would destroy Jerusalem. And then also in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 20, Jesus reinforces this answer to this question. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance. That all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Did that happen? Yes, it did. At the destruction in 70 AD, what, what, what do we call that term? It's called the diaspora. It means when they were um, destroyed in 70, they scattered all over the place. Some went into Europe, some went into Russia, some went everywhere. They were like scurrying for their lives. And they went into all these different nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So when is the times of the Gentiles fulfilled? When Jesus returns physically to the earth, that's when it's all coming to an end. This rock that Daniel spoke of in chapter 2, verse 44, this rock made without hands is going to come and it's going to strike that image representing all the kingdoms of the world, the great kingdoms of the world, and all of it's going to be like stubble and it's going to blow away like the wind. It's going to be nothing when Christ comes. That kind of makes me feel good. Because I look around at the powers that be and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, we're just so overwhelmed, you know. <laughs> There's so much I want to say. No, I won't. <laughs> so, Matthew doesn't record for us, but Luke did. So the question is, what is the sign of the end, your coming and the end of the age? Well, Matthew goes into detail. In fact, let's read it. Verses 4 through 14. Let's read it now. Oh my goodness, I'm looking at the time. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, or ethnos will rise against ethnos, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, period. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, again, at that time yet future, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. We'll look at that later. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Now there are two prominent views 
uh, concerning verses 4 through 14. And we're going to get into this a little bit, and we're going to have to abort <laughs> so we can take uh, communion together this morning, and we'll have to pick up again next week, because this is really, are you guys excited? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm totally thrilled uh, with this, and it's just so amazing. So there are two prominent views concerning these things that Jesus spoke about. You know, in, verse, in verses four through, uh, four, 4 through 14, which we've already read. And the first one is called the inter-advent view. And all that really simply means is it's a time between Christ's first coming or when he was born in Bethlehem as a baby. That was his first advent or his first coming. And, uh, and so it's the time between Christ's first coming, his birth, and the beginning of the tribulation. And I think you can see in the diagram that's up before us, if Jesus was born here, some around 4 or 5 B.C., and then uh, up to the point of this, um, you know, his death and resurrection and ascension occurs somewhere over here. And then we have the church age, which we are a part of right now. And then when the church is raptured, um, then there's going to be perhaps some time in between. We really don't know. But ultimately, the beginning of the tribulation will happen when that man of sin, the Antichrist, makes this treaty or covenant with Israel to, at the very least, allow them to rebuild their temple. So right between Jesus' birth up until here, the beginning of the tribulation is called the inter-advent view. And as we look at this time period, this inter-advent view, um, it includes the time we are in now, as you can plainly see. And it's easy also to see that these characteristics, specifically what we just read in verses 4 through 7, it's, it's easy for us to see that even in our own time right now, in the church age, because they're general in nature. They're very general in nature. And, and if you think about this, even from the beginning of time, there has been great deception. It started in the Garden of Eden with Satan tempting Eve in the garden. There's been temptation. There has been all of these things that have been going on. The pestilences, famines, earthquakes. These things have been going on for a long time. So they're very general in nature. And we see those things today right? Wars and rumors, uh, excuse me, uh, so many people, let me just go back here, throughout the last hundred years or so, there's many that have claimed to be Jesus Christ and those who have been false prophets. Israel has had their bout with false prophets, but false prophets have been around since Israel came into the promised land in 1406 B.C., They've always been around. And wars and rumors of wars have always been on the world scene, even to the current day. Nation has continued to be against nation. We're seeing it right now on the headlines of our, of our newspapers. Nation has continued to be against nation. And we have seen and experienced, even within the internet age that we currently live in, an increase in calamities. We've seen an in increase in famines, pestilences, earthquakes. We are seeing these things ramp up even within recorded history. And these are general signs that we see in our day. But are we in the tribulation? No, we're not. And you may think, well, it seems like we are. There's some, but these are very general signs. Very general signs. But we are not in the tribulation. Because in order for us to be in the tribulation, we would have to, we miss the rapture. And I don't know about you, but if I miss the rapture, I am not going to be very excited. So there are some who also believe that verses 15 through 25, remember we looked at that passage in, in Matthew 24 there? 15 through 25, doesn't that speak of the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week? And if verses 29 through 31 and, and, and through 44, actually, if that refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ, it stands to reason that the verses prior to verse 15 here in Matthew 24, it stands to reason that these verses must also represent the first half of Daniel's 70th week. And the question is, does this have anything to do with the church? No, it doesn't. Is the church present during the tribulation? No, it's not. So if verses 4 through 14, if they are the first half of the tribulation, then these characteristics that Jesus spoke of, these general signs, and even from verses 9 through 14, a little more specific signs, 
if verses 4 through 14, if they are indeed in the first half of that tribulation period, then these characteristics of that age will carry on and be even more pronounced after the church has been raptured. Is there evidence for this view? Yes, there is. And that brings me to the second view. And then we're going to have to quickly go through this and then we're going to have to stop. But I, I want to show this to you. It's called the tribulation view. And I find this very fascinating. And, and really what you see here is just a table of, in the left column, you'll notice that there are uh, things that Jesus mentioned, these signs that would accompany the last days, meaning the time of the tribulation, false messiahs, false prophets, wars, famines, pestilences, persecution, earthquakes, cosmic phenomena. And so if we look at Revelation chapter 6, and remember Revelation chapter 6 is really what starts the tribulation period. Six, chapter 6 through 18 speaks of that time of the 70th week of Daniel, this time of Jacob's trouble, this seven-year period of God pouring out his wrath on a world that has rejected him, right? And so if this, if this is true, if verses 4 through 14, because as we look at this, uh, this chapter, we know that verses 4 through 14... It, it would make sense for it to be the first half. And then from 15 through 25, Jesus talks about the Antichrist who's going to um, uh, set himself up in the temple. And other scriptures tell us that it's going to be at the midpoint of that seven-year period. And then verses 29 through 44 tells us about his second coming. So this first part over here, 4 through 14, would logically be the first half of this tribulation. But does it add up to what we read in Revelation? And it does. And it does. So I'm going to leave this up on the screen. And we're going to take a look at this briefly. And, and then we have to move on here. <laughs> so let me just say this. Again, Jesus appears to be giving in short form, in an abbreviated form in Matthew 24, the details of the first half of Daniel's 70th week. If this is true, then this should match up with the sealed judgments of Revelation 6 and increase in intensity until Christ returns in Revelation 19. And does it? Yes, it does. So let's compare the events mentioned in verse 4, four through 14 of Matthew 24 with that of Revelation and look at these sealed judgments and see if there is some correlation here. And I think you'll find it very interesting. But read it yourself. Again, there's two views. I think this is very possibly the view. I mean, don't watch the view. But what, what, what about these events mentioned in verses 4 through 14 that we've already noted? False messiahs, false, false prophets, false, false Christs. Well, what does it tell us in Revelation 6-2 at the first trumpet, or I'm sorry, the first um, seal judgment? What does it tell us? And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And, and I'll read these to you, and you can just look on. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Who is this man on the white horse in the beginning of the tribulation period? It's not Jesus. He's coming to conquer and to conquer. This is the Antichrist. Jesus comes at the end on a white horse. So what do we have here? A counterfeit. We have a false messiah. A white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So it's not, it's not Jesus, it's the Antichrist. But what about wars and international discord? Well, the, the next seal tells us, or I'm sorry, in uh, Revelation uh, 6, 2 through 4, and, and it talked about the, uh, this man coming on the horse, this Antichrist. And then in verse 3, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. So does that talk about war? Absolutely. 
And notice how it goes right in order, too. It's kind of uncanny, isn't it? It's, it's undeniable, really. But what about famines and pestilences? In Revelation 6, verse 5, Then he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Speaking of an incredible incredible famine at the time. And then the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power, notice, was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger and death, and with the beasts of the earth. So does it talk about famines and pestilences? It does. Well, let's go on. What about persecution and martyrdom? In Revelation 6, verse 9 through 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. These are people in the tribulation that have been martyred, who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So let me ask, does it talk about persecution and martyrdom? It does. What about earthquakes and cosmic phenomena? Verses 12 through 14 of Revelation 6. And I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black and sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars fell from heaven, the sky rolling back as like a scroll, and every mountain was moved out of its place. Does that sound like cosmic phenomena and, and destruction? So can you see... Those verses, Matthew 4 through 14, have a correlation in the beginning of the tribulation as stipulated by Revelation 6, the beginning of that first three and a half year period. And it gets worse. And Jesus is just giving, I don't, I don't think he was exhaustive. Again, it's an abbreviated thing. He's just saying, yeah, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. A lot more is going to happen, but I'm gonna, I'll leave that for John to write. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And notice, he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. We're going to have to stop there. But I want to encourage you. And we're going to finish this and go on to the next section next week. But know that the Lord is wrapping human history up. He's wrapping it up. And I don't say that of my own understanding. I, I say that because the Word of God tells us that. And I think you can see. Now, there are some who believe, well, you know, we're seeing these things. And in fact, many Christians are getting confused thinking that, and don't worry, the Thessalonians, they were confused too because they were really going through it in the first century. And Paul told them about the rapture, that they would have to be raptured before the man of sin would come on, on the scene. And now they're confused because they're really being persecuted. And there's other people telling them, oh, that didn't happen. You're in the middle of the tribulation. <laughs> So the Thessalonians were, were confused too and Christians today are confused because they see these things and they see us all uptight about stuff for good reason. Pointing out these things and people are thinking, well, we must be in the tribulation. No, listen, the, the hell has not broken forth yet as much as what's going to happen. We're seeing what I call the Braxton Hicks contractions. If these are birth pangs, and women, you know, ladies, mothers, you know that the birth pangs, they start off, and Jesus spoke of it very clearly. It starts off, and then as time goes on, it gets more intense, more intense. The frequency of those contractions get, get quicker and quicker, and pretty soon, child bursts on the scene. So what are we living in? I call them the Braxton Hicks contractions. Because when my wife was pregnant, she had Braxton Hicks contractions. Many women do. A false sign. You think it's coming, but it really didn't happen. Ooh, something's happening here. Ooh, I think I'm going, you know, going into labor, but it, it didn't happen. So I, this is just my opinion. I believe that we are in that time. If that time that we're talking about is the birth pangs, and if we understand the rest of Scripture, then 
We can't be here when that happens. The real church can't be here when that happens. But what are we seeing? We're seeing the Braxton Hicks. <laughs> we're seeing the signs, and they look awfully close, and they're very, they're like, oh my goodness. Things are ramping up, and it has to be that way. You can't just go from one thing right to another overnight. It takes time, and there's a gradual swell, and we are seeing that gradual swell. We're seeing it. We're living it. Blessed are we to be living in these days. Because I believe with all my heart, this generation is going to be the one. I don't know. You know I, nobody places dates and all this nonsense. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying. We've never been closer than we are to the rapture of the church. So I'm going to ask you, as, the, as Sarah comes on up and she's going to lead us in a song of worship, where are you at with Christ today? Does any of this register to you? What do you think about it? Do you think it's just a bunch of hogwash? You can think that if you'd like. But let me suggest to you that what was shared with you this morning, biblically, is the truth. It is the truth, and I believe it with all of my heart. And I'm not the only one. But what do you do with this information? If it's just all in my head, if it's just to fill my mind with facts and things, then it means nothing. It's done nothing. But it ought to provoke us. This information that we read in the Word of God ought to provoke something in us to come to holiness, to say, Lord, you're in me. I need to be about your business now. I need to tell and warn the world, my family, my loved ones, to tell them what's coming upon the earth. It is coming, and it's coming like a freight train, and nothing and no one can stop it because it's of God. And when God does it, you're not going to stop it. I'm waiting for his return, for the church, the rapture, Easily defended in the Bible. Easily defended. But you must be part of the church. Are you part of the church this morning? Have you given your heart to Christ? Have you confessed your sin to Jesus Christ? Have you received him into your life as Lord and Savior? Not just your Lord, or not just your Savior, but notice it always talks, whenever you see those two phrases together in the Bible, it doesn't just say Savior and Lord. No, it's always Lord and Savior. Why? Because I can call him my Savior but I don't want him to be Lord of my life. I still want to do what I want to do. Hey, listen, if you're in that place of saying, he's my savior, but I want to continue doing what I'm doing, I got to ask you a question. Are you really born again? Because if you're really born again, you're not going to have that desire. You're not going to be flirting with the lordship of Christ. I mean, granted, I, 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 there's times where, you know, but I'm talking about consistently a life, a life that's demonstrating that I don't want the Lord to be Lord of my life. Well, if he's not really Lord of my life, then how can I have any confidence that he's my Savior either? He must be Lord and Savior. Otherwise, you've got nothing. No confidence. Let him be Lord of your life today. Give your heart to him. For anyone here today, seriously, come on up afterwards if you haven't received Christ or if you're listening to this on the radio or wherever. Pull over alongside the road and give your heart to Christ now. You don't have tomorrow. You do not have tomorrow as a guarantee. Today is the day of salvation, amen? But for those of us who love Christ and are born again, I invite you to the table. I invite you to come up. And I'm sorry it's late. I knew it would be. I think you did too. So, Sarah's going to lead us in a song of worship. Just come on up, grab the elements, bring them back to your uh, chair, and we'll take them together, okay? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You know, it's interesting as we've been covering this discourse, this sharing of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, it would be the very next night. It would be a Thursday night. The very next night. Jesus would be with his disciples in the upper room and he would, after the Passover meal, he would take the elements in, in, in anticipation of his crucifixion hours from then, the very early the next morning. He would go through the mock trial and all of the business. But after the, he took the, in anticipation of his blood and his body being broken, he took the, those, the bread and the cup, remember, 
And that's what this signifies. There's nothing magical about this. We, just, we do this in, in remembrance of him. We do this in commemoration of the event. We don't sacrifice Christ anew. This is not the Mass. <laughs> we do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. There's no hocus pocus here. We do this because of him and what these represent. His body was broken for us. And let's partake of the, of the bread in, in honor of what he has done for us. And after he broke the bread and he passed it around and each of the disciples tore off a piece of that bread, I bet it was crisp and you could hear it crunch just like Wegmans or Leo's crunch. Nice smell of that freshly baked thing. Hallelujah. He takes the cup and he passes it around. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament that is shed for you for the remission of sin. Take it and drink all of it. And so let's do that. Praise the Lord. You know, what a joy to do this together. We get to do this. I want to thank you for your, your kindness. I know this is late. It's very hard <laughs> to go through all this and keep it short. Uh, it's such a great thing. So let's stand together and let's pray. Uh, come on out tonight um, at 6 p.m. I believe... Pastor Richard will be sharing with us this evening. So uh, we'll meet in the cafe. It'll be nice and warm, and you can get coffee, and you can sit at your, uh, at your uh, table there. It's really nice and comfy there. And so um, come out tonight at 6. But Father, we just come before you, Lord. We thank you for this, uh, this passage, Lord. It, it really has taken me to the mat. And Lord, I am so thankful, Lord, for just revealing it. And I pray that you continue to do so, Lord, and that the information of this stuff, and as we relate it in the scripture, Lord, that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, that it would get into our heart and it would truly change us, Lord. If we believe that these times are as short as they are, and we see the Braxton Hicks contractions already, Lord, we know that soon the labor pains are coming, but not before you take us out of this earth, Lord, to be with you, transforming our mortal bodies into immortal. Lord, we thank you for that. Please encourage us with these things and keep us safe today, Lord. Help us to get home safely and just really enjoy time with you and your word. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you encourage us and console us in all of our troubles? In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon.